I wanted to start by asking this morning, if you ever feel kind of insecure about your Christianity, maybe kind of shaky, not quite sure if your spiritual life is as robust and real as it should be for a Christian. Maybe, uh, maybe you feel like sometimes uh, there's something missing, something that you don't have that other Christians seem to have. Do you ever feel like that? It's a little insecure? Perhaps uh, you feel this way uh, because of a comparison, right? You know other Christians that seem to have it uh, much more together than you? Uh, when they talk about their devotional life, it's always in really vibrant terms about the Spirit leading and God speaking to them in prayer, and, and you kind of can't relate. You think, it doesn't seem that way for me. Or uh, when it comes to Bible study, they seem to really know their th- theological stuff. They talk about Calvin and Augustine and Lewis, and you just kind of nod your head and smile. You have no idea. And, and you just think, man, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. About this Christian, I, maybe I'm not up to it. Or perhaps you feel a little insecure about your Christianity because, not because of comparison, but because of just some honest introspection. Maybe you've uh, grown up in Christianity. All you young people here, high schoolers, college students, you've grown up in it, maybe going to church, maybe going to Christian school. All your life, you've known the Bible stories and the, and, the, and the catechism answers, but sometimes maybe you feel like it's really just kind of painted on you, kind of like a, a forgery, right? There's this original painting that was there, but then somebody painted a beautiful Picasso right over the top, but you know that the truth is underneath. It's not that you're against Christianity but you just don't know if it's, if it's really you. You've kind of, maybe it's just been put on you. You feel insecure. Or maybe it's just the insecurity in your life is just simply because of sin in your life. And it's, it's kind of ongoing, and you thought by this stage as a Christian it would go away, the thing you were struggling with, but it hasn't, and you just feel like maybe you're missing something. Well, if this is you for whatever reason... You feel a little insecure about your Christianity. I have two things to say to you this morning. First of all, you're normal. Welcome to the club. Every real Christian feels this way. I know I do. You want to feel insecure as a Christian? Try standing up here every week. Remember that show, The Biggest Loser, where they had to get on the scale at the end of the week, see how they did in the dieting? It's kind of how it feels. Second thing I want to say to you, not only are you normal, but this book is for you. This book is for me. It's written to a group of insecure, struggling Christians. You see, this book is, is, is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a little church in Colossae in about A.D. 62. And this church seems to have come about because Paul had been preaching in a larger city called Ephesus nearby, and a man from Colossae, a man named Epaphras, was in that city. He heard 
the message of the gospel that Paul was preaching. He got saved, and then he brought the message back to his hometown, little Colossae, and began to proclaim it, began to tell his friends. And people heard it and believed and became followers of Christ, and they began this little church meeting in somebody's home. Now, as a fledgling little church, there is natural insecurity. Think about this. They never even met Paul. They just they have the, the story that Epaphras has told them. They, they're going to think, are we doing this right? Do, do we have all we need? Do we have all the information? This church is probably mostly Gentiles, and they've got these Jewish scriptures. Is, is this everything, these, the Old Testament? Did Epaphras give them all the goods? Maybe there's more Christian stuff. Maybe there's more experience. Maybe they're missing something. And on top of this, scholars point out as you read through the book that you can pick up that there, are, there were teachers that had come into this church that were, that were kind of stoking these flames that these guys were not really enough, that they weren't really the real thing. Perhaps they were kind of Jewish rogue scribes, but they were proclaiming deeper spiritual levels, claiming to offer special protection from evil spirits through the practice of certain rituals and offering deliverance from specific afflictions, all the while just insinuating that the Colossians were, were not quite there, not quite enough. So Paul, as he writes this letter to them, is trying to secure them, to ground them, to say, don't worry, you're the real thing. You got all you need in Christ. You're on the right track. Stay the course. In fact, just real quickly, before we jump into our text, look at chapter 2, verse 6, because most people, and I agree, say this is kind of the theme verse of the book. Chapter 2, verse 6, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. He's saying, look, you guys, you got it. Just keep going with what you have. And then look at how he begins the book. Go back to our text. Look at chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Now, he, he addresses them. Does he say, hey, hey, um, beginner, Christian, seekers, level oneers? No, he calls them saints. That's holy ones, which means that the set-apart people of God and brothers, faithful brothers in Christ. That's how he starts his letter, by saying, you guys are saints. This is a term that was reserved throughout all the history for just God's covenant people, the, the Jews, the people that were made his children, they were promised salvation and inheritance. He says, no, saints, set-apart ones, my brothers and sisters. In Christ. He could not be making a clear statement to this little church that they are full blown, complete, real deal Christians on the same level as he is. But here's the thing how can Paul say this? He's never even met them. 
can you be so sure? Well, in the next couple of verses, he lays out three things about them, three markers, I would say, kind of, of, of authentic, real-deal Christianity that, that he sees in them to encourage them. Look at verses 3 to 5. He tells them of, of, of his prayer for them. We always thank God, the Father, for our Lord, uh, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. There you have it. Paul knows these guys are the real deal, and he's so thankful for them as his brothers and sisters because he has heard of their faith and their hope and their love and their hope. These are the, these are the markers of the saints, those in Christ. This is, what, this is what convinces him. This is how he knows they are authentic. This is why he's filled with thankfulness for them. You see, if you're feeling a little unsure, a little insecure this morning, or you're wondering what it is to be a Christian, or if it's real in your life, think through these markers for a minute with me, that he's picked, and then kind of think through where you're at. First of all, faith. Paul says here that he's heard of their faith, that they are living by faith. Christians are people who live by faith. But note that it's specifically very important, specifically faith in, what does it say? Your faith in Christ Jesus. The last part is very, very important. You see, we live in, in a culture that loves faith, right? America is full of people that value living by faith. And it, be, it can be con, a bit confusing because the term is used very loosely. In America, I think there are kind of two, uh, two ideas about faith, two forms. The first is faith, that is, faith in faith. It's kind of a, a general believe-ism. Every other song on the radio and Disney movie is about this kind of faith and believing. You kind of just close your eyes and believe hard enough and your dreams will come true, faith. I sometimes like to watch those uh, shows on TV that are... Uh, the, the kind of physical competition shows, right? Kind of like the American Ninjas or the Spartans or, or the newest one that I've been watching is the Alone series where they're out you know, surviving with nothing. Good stuff. And all these shows are full of faith talk. At some point in the episode, there is a crisis with one of the contestants they want to give up, they can't do it any longer and, and their coach comes alongside or their trainer or that inner voice on alone, it's got to be the inner voice because there's nobody with them. And it's telling them, hey, you've got to dig deeper. You've got to believe. And of course, this faith is ultimately in what? In themselves. They, they can do it. It's in them if they'll just believe hard enough in their own strength. It's about grit, you know, and positive thinking and tapping into your full potential which, by the way, can be very helpful physically in these physical competitions, but it's useless spiritually. Useless. It's useless to deal with our souls. It's useless to deal with our sin. Faith in ourselves doesn't work spiritually because the Bible says ourselves 
We are the problem. It's just humanist religion. And if that's the kind of faith that you kind of have this morning when you speak of faith, that's the way you've been using it, you've just kind of Christianized self-trust. And you should feel insecure. Now, some Americans are a little more devout and religious than this, and they actually have a faith in God. But it's God, again, in, in general. They have this kind of wishful, mystical theism they believe God is, is out there, the big guy in the sky in some way. He's there. He might be a force. We don't really know how you know him, but he's there and he's for you. So if you just believe hard enough and strive to live a good life, he'll bless you. But again, this ends up in self-trust. Can I believe hard enough? Can I do live a good enough life? No, Paul is talking about the exact opposite of these ideas when he speaks of the Colossians' faith. He's talking about their faith in Christ. They're trusting in Jesus. He's talking about how these Colossians have had a complete reorienting of their lives from an inward self-trust to an outward total reliance on Jesus Christ. They've entrusted their lives to him. They've heard the message that he gave his divine life for them at the cross to bring forgiveness and salvation, and they've relationally committed their lives to him as their Lord and Savior. They're relying on his death and resurrection for their salvation. They're relying on his spirit to help them live for him. They have faith total trust and reliance in Jesus. So Paul thanks God for them. You're the real deal, he says. You're saints, you're brothers. That's the first marker of being a Christian. If you want to know this morning, if you want to feel secure, you want to know if you're a real Christian, are you living by faith in Christ Jesus? Are you trusting in yourself or are you trusting in him? It's a simple question. It's not are you living a clean life? It's not, are you filled with all kinds of new wisdom and insight? It's not, are you, uh, you know, do you feel the spirit? It's not, it's not any of that. It's, are you trusting in Christ for your salvation? And that brings me to the second marker. It's not only faith, but what's the next one? That's the third one. Next one, love, right? It says here that he's heard of their love that you have for all the saints. You see, not only do they have this, this vertical reality of a relationship, a trust in Christ, but it's led to this horizontal outworking, this expression of love this way in their lives. And note that it's love for all the saints. They've committed to Christ, and they now genuinely love their family, their brothers and sisters in him. I know when we hear this, we kind of go, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I know, yeah, Christians are supposed to be loving, we're supposed to love each other. But I want you to note, that, just get in, in this, go back, go back, be in Colossae for a minute. The historical context, 
This is a church made up of who? Gentiles and Jews. Mostly Gentiles, I think, a predominantly Gentile church, but Jews as well. Now, these groups did not like each other at all. The Jews viewed Gentiles as degenerates, as unclean. They called them dogs, foul people, people to stay away from. We don't even know because we are so politically correct. We wouldn't you know, talk that way, although we might act that way. But we don't even get the, the open tension that there was here. They, they, you, know, you don't eat at tables with them. You don't get near them. And the Gentiles saw them as, you know, Re- jerk, religious elitists. They couldn't stand them as well. It wasn't just that they came from different worlds. There was genuine disdain and hatred. And it's gone. Replaced with a, a genuine affection and care. They love each other. It's been such a radical change that people at the time are noticing and and talking about it. Paul, it says here, he's heard about it. It's the word on the street. There is this community in Colossae where this radical boundary-crossing, hate-overcoming love is happening. It's weird. Love for all. It's funny, when you flip over to chapter 3, verse 11, he's talking about this a little more, and he says... Here, that's referring to the church, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythian, slave, free, but Christ in all. And, but Christ is all and in all. Scythian, barbarian, slave, free, Jew, Greek, learned, ignorant, rich, poor, fellowshipping together, loving each other. We saw the, uh, the outworkings of this last week a little bit when uh, Jay was preaching in Philemon and telling us <laughs> about how Philemon, uh, we're, we're, we're in there, how the slave and the slave owner are, are, re, are actually reunited and there's this reconciliation between them. Talk about overcoming hatred. In love. It's one of the main things that Epaphras reports back to Paul about this church. Look at the end of verse 7, uh, 7 and 8. We'll just read it. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Epaphras comes back to report to Paul, and one of the main things that he tells him is like, you won't believe how they're loving each other. And note that it says love in the Spirit. I just want you to note that. It's the first time that the book, that the, uh, the Spirit is, is referenced in this book. It's actually the one place in this book where the Spirit is referenced, the Spirit of God, and its work in the church. And what is it? It's love. I mean, you would, you would think, well, it's, uh, it's gifting, it's healing, it's tongues, it's worship style, it's preaching. Nope. Love. Of course, it's the number one fruit of the Spirit, right? Practical, affectionate care for all. Not just the lovable and beautiful and not just those like you, 
but for all the saints. You see, we may know all the Christian answers and follow all the rules and be able to talk about Calvinism and Reformed theology, but if we have no real love for our brothers, it should give us pause. It's a key marker of the real deal. It's why Paul is so thankful for them. And it's my prayer for our church. I don't want us to be known for having the right theology. I want to have the right theology, but I don't want that to be, to be about. I don't want us to be known for expositional preaching, although I love expositional preaching. That's what we do. I don't want us to be known as the missions church, although missions is so important. I pray that we are known first and foremost for our faith in Christ Jesus and our love for one another. And there's one more thing, one more marker that Paul sees in them or hears about them. It's hope. A real Christian has a real hope. Look at verse 5. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. They have this real objective hope. Paul says it's laid up for them in heaven. It's not like the world's hope that is really just about feelings and wishful thinking, hoping something might come or might happen. It's actually already secured in this reality that's out there in heaven. It's there. And what is this hope? Well, he teases it out a little bit. We'll see it as we go through the book. But let's just take a quick uh, preview of heaven. Look at verse uh, 12, first of all. Skipping ahead a little bit. Chapter 1, verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. It's, it's, it's the full inheritance of the people of God. Everything that is Christ, we inherit. Look at chapter 1, verse 21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. It's a hope of a full, complete transformation that one day we reflect what Christ has already won for us. We will be done with sin and corruption, made perfect, holy and blameless. Look at 127. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of his mystery, which is in Christ, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He says, because Christ is in us by his spirit, we have a hope of glory, of reflecting that full glory of the Lord that we were created to reflect. We will get it again. And then look how it caps. Look at chapter 3. I had to read this, verses 1 to 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. He's already there. He's in heaven. Set your thing, minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. 
When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. As sure as, sure as Jesus rose from the dead, we have a hope of someday entering heavenly glory with him. He's already there holding it for us. It's secure. It's going to be this awesome, sinless, renewed, perfect life. That's pretty exciting. It's pretty motivating. In fact, Paul says in verse 5, you notice that it, it, he, he says, because, right? It is the motivation of our faith and hope, our faith and love, because of the hope. We're kind of exhorted by it. I had this friend in uh, college that I met. I went to, I mean, seminary in, uh, in Australia, and uh, he was another foreigner. He came from England. His name was James Healy Hutchison. He was a very English man. He seemed older than the rest of us for some reason. <laughs> and every day he took a walk. Most of us guys didn't take walks every day, but he did. And I one day asked him, what do you do on these walks you take every day? And he said, I just contemplate heaven. And I know to this day he still does that. He takes those walks and he thinks about heaven. That's the motivation, right? It's a great thing to do. Are you trusting in Jesus Christ alone by faith? Do you love your Christian brothers and sisters? Do you have a hope of heaven before you? That's what it is to be a Christian. These are the core elements of the Christian life. This is always where we need to kind of rest and, and, and be secure. It's interesting how in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, it says these are the realities, right? Faith, hope, and love that, that abide, that go on. And I want you to think about how egalitarian these things are. Faith, hope, and love. It's not about, oh, I, I am so talented that I can get faith. I've got such a religious heritage that I can love. No. It's not about any of that. Anybody can trust Christ, can love their brothers and sisters, can have the hope of heaven. But let me say, if you know these aren't realities in your life, or you're not sure, you have a reason to be insecure this morning. Your insecurity about your Christianity is, is probably very real. If that's where you're at, please pay attention to the last part of this text. Because Paul tells us where such a life comes from. He tells us how these Colossians gained this life of faith, hope, and love. How it happened for them. Look at verse 5, the second part. Oops, I've got to go back to chapter 1. Verse 5, the second part. This is what he says. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our brother and fellow serpent. Servant. How did this happen for them? Through the gospel. 
They received this life as they received the gospel. Epaphras brought this simple message about Jesus. They heard it and believed it and the fruits of faith and love and hope filled them and and began to increase in their lives. Isn't that crazy? It's so spectacularly unspectacular. There was no special vision or audible voice from heaven or dramatic deliverance, not even a special religious ritual that they could do. Let's review the simplicity in kind of real time. Epaphras goes on a trip to Ephesus, and he's hanging out, and one day he walks into this hall, probably the hall of Tyrannus, and this man named Paul was giving a Bible talk, and he heard the gospel, the good news that speaks of Jesus, God's son, becoming a man, and how he lived this perfect, sinless life for us, and, then, and how he died in our place and resurrected to new life. And now he offers forgiveness and eternal life to all who will trust in him, who will give their life to him. And God gripped his heart and he believed. And suddenly he went from a lost soul trusting in himself with no hope in this world to being filled with faith in Christ love and hope and then he excitedly returned to his hometown and simply began to share this same gospel message he heard from Paul and people heard it and they believed it and they trusted in Jesus and the fruits of the the gospel increased in their life faith hope love and note that he says here this is not unusual what does he say it's happening all over in the world The gospel is bearing fruit all over. It's going out. This is why Paul calls it in Romans 1.17, the power of God unto salvation. This person-to-person sharing of this simple message that doesn't seem like, like anything to many. But it's changing lives, transforming people. If you're a believer this morning, this is how you got saved. Someone told you the gospel and you believed. This is why we're all about this at Christ the Redeemer. But here's the question. How is the gospel so powerful to change lives and to change the the world, to bring salvation? What about it so powerful? Well, there's a lot of things But I want us to note how it's described here. Two ways that it's described. Do you notice? When you're looking in those verses, like five and six, seven there, he he describes it, first of all, as the word of truth. That's in verse five. The gospel is powerful at the simple level of just being the truth. The truth about us, the truth about God. You know how the truth is? It's the truth. It's inherently powerful. And then, in verse 6, he calls it the grace of God in truth. 
The gospel is God's truth and his grace held together. And that is powerful. You see, so many religious forms today go one, one way or the other, right? They're either all big on truth with, with really no gross, grace. They, they highlight your sin and your failure before God. They declare that you are under judgment and, and must do better and get things right. And you're all true. But then perhaps they demand that you follow certain rules and regulations to try to, to fix that that are almost impossible. And this truth, truth may, may be, this way of religion may be kind of helpful for some change behavior. It may put you on the straight and narrow in some kind of ways, but it can never change your heart. It can never transform you into a person of faith and love and hope. In fact, you're always going to be insecure because you're always going to be wondering if you've done enough. Then there's the other form of religion that's all about grace without truth. They're they're very pleasant religious forms. They sound really nice. They tell people you're fine the way you are. You're a good person. Of course you'll go to heaven. God would never bring judgment or punishment because he's a God of love. You don't need saving. You just need some self-empowerment, some improvement. So they feel so giving and and, and loving and, and right, but you see, that's not true. And a nice sounding lie is still a lie, and it's powerless. Such religion isn't helping you face the truth of who you are and the hopeless situation you are in as a sinner. The gospel, however, is powerful because it holds both together. It tells us God's truth about who we are, sinners separated from our holy God facing judgment in need of forgiveness and cleansing, helpless to save ourselves. And then it introduces God's grace. The mercy of God through his son's atoning death on our behalf, bringing real forgiveness and life offered to us as a free gift so that we can be saved. This is what we all need. The truth and grace in Jesus. That's the power of the gospel to produce changed hearts. Hearts filled with faith and love and hope in Christ Jesus. So how should we respond this morning to this reality? Well, first of all, be secure in Christ, Christians. If you've received Jesus, you have received it all. You are a saint, you are a brother or sister. You don't need more religious stuff. You don't need to speak in all the Christianized spiritual lingo or master theological scholastics or have the most vibrant devotional life or feel blessed in new ways every day. No. Are you trusting in Christ, loving your brothers and sisters, looking forward to heaven and hope? Just chill in that Rest, enjoy, 
Secondly, be thankful. I love how Paul starts off this letter, and he's going to go into it throughout the letter, but he starts off with this in verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. He's so thankful that God is doing his work through the gospel, not only in the Jews, but in these Gentile brothers and sisters, drawing his people in truth and grace and proclaiming, uh, producing in them the fruits of his gospel. We need to look around at this community that he's given us and what God is doing. And we need to be thankful. It's amazing. Third, be speaking like Epaphras, who brought the gospel to his hometown. God is, is doing his saving work in this world, in people's lives, through the simple person-to-person sharing of the gospel, of the good news. It's the power of God and salvation. Be part of it. We must be proclaiming the good news in our relationships, in our friendships. As people are freaking out today about the state of our country and where it's going and what to do, this is what to do. The spectacularly unspectacular work of sharing the good news. I saw the Jesus Revolution movie with my kids last week, and that's one thing that, if you haven't seen that movie, one thing that comes clear in that is people just shared the simple gospel in the time when people were desperate. Fourth, be saved. If you aren't, believe the truth about yourself. You're a sinner, separating from God, facing judgment that you deserve and you can't fix it. But God offers you salvation in his son by grace. Receive him. Receive his forgiveness in life. Become a part of his family and know real, eternal faith, love, and hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that this ancient letter written to this little church speaks right here to Christ the Redeemer, right into our lives because it's so real, because it's the truth. May we learn from you this morning. May we be your saints. Amen.